Welcome everybody to the second session of the seminar in the history of the book, and um, which is hosted by the 15th century book trade project, which I lead, and by the Center for the Study of the Book of the Bodmer Library. Our second speaker is Professor Julia Bray, um, here at Oxford. It seems to me that is very well known to everybody um, at the seminar. And uh, so we'll go straight to um, title, which is Crows into Codices, Giuliani's Picture Poems for Saladin. Julia, please. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. I'm an amateur, as will become apparent. And uh, my interest in these picture poems uh, was initially just a literary interest because I work on literature, on Arabic literature of the Middle Ages to early modern period. But trying to work on these picture poems as literature, it soon became apparent to me that they also had to be understood as objects and as objects not just as they were originally conceived, which is something that we have to reconstruct from the versions that have reached us, but also as objects that circulated through time and place. And they raise a great many questions in that respect, which I have not begun to be able to answer. And indeed, there are probably many pertinent questions that I haven't even begun to formulate. So these picture poems were written by the person on your handout. In the first instance for Saladin, who was then starting his career, and who was very keen to be well written up and had a great many poets round about him doing just that. This particular poet, who was also a physician, and Saladin uh, was a rather weakly character, strangely enough, and surrounded himself with physicians, uh, as well as being a poet and a physician, uh, Giuliani obviously had other artistic qualities which he deployed in making his poems for Saladin and then thereafter for other Ayyubid princes, making them into something visually arresting and very special. These poems came to my attention uh, via a, um, an internet forum called Middle East Medievalists where somebody asked if there was such a thing in Arabic as picture poems. And a librarian from one of the American libraries said, well, maybe and maybe not, but there's this book that has just come out. This was a book published in 2010, which I'll show you presently, uh, in which there are certainly poems that are written in pictures. And I sat back and waited for the correspondence to develop, and it never did nothing happened. Uh, a couple of years later I came to Oxford and found at my uh, disposal the vast resources of the Bodleian, that is to say if I wanted a book I could simply ask them to buy it. Uh, quite a change from the place that I'd come from. Um, and so this book was bought, catalogued and made available in record time and I started to look at it. Uh, you have the bibliographical details on your handout so I won't go into them now. 
I looked at it, and as I looked at it, I realised that there were puzzling things about it. It is a reproduction in the main of one of a group of three manuscripts. I shall actually be talking about five manuscripts, but this edition is based on three manuscripts, one in Manchester, one in Paris, and one in Uppsala. Its base text is the fullest mm. of the three manuscripts by far, which is the Manchester John Rylands one, which is also the earliest. It supposedly dates from 1335, or the equivalent of 1335. It is very beautiful, and it is written in not just black and white, but in colours. And when we get to the illustrations such as these, they, of course, are also written in colours. The book consists of several poems that are in several parts, and then there are prose bits and rhymed prose bits as well, that are uh, explained in non-pictorial terms, and then you get the pictures. But it doesn't actually work in the book as we have it. So you'll get long passages in which everything seems to go here, and then they will go skew with. And in any case, the pictures that have been included, the pictures which are rather blown-up pictures taken from the Manchester manuscript, seem to be inserted rather randomly, and there are a few snaps from the Uppsala manuscript as well, and just one from the Paris manuscript. So if I pass this round to you, um, I think you'll see what I mean by it not coming together very well. Uh, the obvious thing to have done would have been to go to Manchester and look at the manuscript, but I was too busy to go to Manchester, so again, drawing on the resources of Oxford, I ordered a complete set of uh, PDFs, JPEGs, and I simply printed them out. And that turned out to be the right thing to have done initially, because once you print them out, it becomes evident what has happened, or at least it seemed evident to me. But when you get something like this, They are all meant to connect. You see those little stalks that one run from the edge of one picture to another, and that connects them. Mm -hmm. So they all ought to connect via these stalks or via some other device, but then you get something like this. You get a page of uh, what is, in effect, the gloss or the explanation. Uh, and in this case, we've got several that are upside down. And then we start off on another fresh set of pictures and you can see that it is a fresh set because there is no connector there and it's going to connect it's in fact the other side of that picture and then off we go again with another one and again a passage of explanation so it uh, was very um, Probable, it seemed to me, that these things, what you had to do was stick them together via the connectors. And I did that, and in some cases it worked, and in some cases the order of the folios was shuffled around and I had to uh, adjust them. And in other cases there were bits missing, 
but on the whole, the result was quite a lot of these, which come in various shapes and sizes. <coughs> there are a number of figures that are just a couple of folios, or rather just a couple of pages one folio folded in two. That is unique in that it is simply one. There are quite a number that are medium-sized. And that obviously, or at least it seems to me, has a bit missing here. So I just stuck together the bits that I could find. They come in a variety of patterns, if you like, and there are some very large ones. Here we have a 12-page or a couple of 12-page sequences. That's the one that you saw up on the screen reconstituted. And we've got a 14-page sequence. And I won't, I won't show you them all, but you're welcome to look at them if you like. The colours aren't as good as they should be in these printouts. So what had happened? I imagined that what had happened was that originally these scrolls had existed as scrolls. Now the question of how they were used is one that raises a lot of questions and it may not be entirely pertinent to what the kind of thing that we're talking about today, so I won't go into it unless you, unless you want to go into it. What happened, I imagined, and what is borne out by another manuscript which was not used by these editors but which Ferras Krimsti told me how to get hold of, or rather how to go and visit and how to look at online, uh, where it has been generously made available free to the public, is the Gotha manuscript, which has only two sequences, as against the great number of sequences that the John Rylands uh, manuscript has. So it has two long sequences and one uh, couple of uh, facing pages. And this manuscript was obviously much better copied because they are all in sequence. As you turn the pages, you can see that they are meant to connect. And then if you take out whatever holds the pages together, having previously stuck them together, you get a perfect scroll. So here is a scroll in its scroll format from the um, Gotha manuscript, and I'll leave one of them in the form in which you get it as a bound-in. And as you can see, this is a really gorgeous manuscript. 
You will also note the exemplary way in which the JPEGs have been identified before they are put up online, whereas the John Ryland's JPEGs, they just come in a heat and you have to sort them out for yourself. So having um, got to the point where I had worked out that originally these must have been scrolls, I rested on my laurels for a while thinking that I had explained everything. But uh, a moment's reflection will, uh, I'm sure, tell you that I hadn't, because what do these books consist of? These codices into which these scrolls have been folded and uh, thenceforth forever copied from codices, I think. Um, you've got these passages in between of explanation. And those passages of explanation, I do not think, would have been scrolls. There is no reason why they should have been scrolls. So I think what we have here is a compound. These poems are meant to be deciphered. They are extremely complex. What happens is that not only do the poems inhabit the figures into which they are written, and I'll call them all poems for convenience, but some of them are not poems, they also generate further poems as you travel up and down the figures and across. And that is one of the reasons for the use of colours. They indicate crossings or repeats, things that you take out of the old poem and use in the new poem. And the poems that are generated from the parent poem differ from the parent poem in rhyme scheme. And remember that this is very difficult because it is classical Arabic poetry in which you are only allowed to use one rhyme sound per poem and you must not repeat it. So you can't say, my love is like a dove and my father's like a lava or something. You have to keep the same rhyme running right through the poem. So not only does the newly generated poem or poem change rhyme, it also changes metre. And to derive one metre from another is perhaps not as difficult as it sounds, but it is still quite a feat. And then to inscribe them in these figures and get them to fit is a work which the author told us uh, was a terrible mental and physical strain. And it must have been a terrible mental and physical strain just to copy them. Well, these, these puzzle poems were meant to be deciphered by the recipient or for the recipient, and they consist largely of praises of the recipient. And the problem that is raised by the scrolls, and those are all A4 size, but um, that is not the size of the manuscripts from which they're copied. Um, some of the manuscripts are approximately A4 size. The Paris manuscript is huge. It's almost A3. So how do you read things from scrolls that, in order to be able to go up and down and round about, you have to turn them round? Obviously, if the whole scroll is unrolled, you will just roll yourself up in it, and uh, the result will be catastrophic. So I suppose they had to be used as classical reading scrolls, where you, know, you edged your way along them a bit at a time. 
but it would not have been helpful to have the instructions in that format. I think the instructions came rather like the instructions for a board game in the shape of a separate booklet. So what we have here is, in fact, a sequence of poems with their instruction booklets, and they appear to have the same format, all to be a book, simply because they have been put together as codices. The different manuscripts contain different numbers of these poems. The uh, Manchester manuscript, I've got all the figures that I can give you if you are interested in them. The Manchester manuscript contains a lot with... Uh, all different, uh, of all different sizes. Um, not all of them are fully deciphered, and the instructions that go with them actually on the images, which say turn left here or this is where it begins, are not very numerous or very accurate, whereas on the Gotha manuscript they are both numerous and very helpful. I don't know whether they're integral or whether they were added later from somebody who had read the instruction books and thought, well, it's just too complicated moving between the instructions, particularly when in codex form the instruction is quite a long way away from the actual picture that you're trying to decipher. So originally I think they were separate, and what now appears as a book was a number of discrete objects, of which some were booklets and others were scrolls. Now, in the course of copying, some people uh, got it right, and the Gotha manuscript is an example of a beautifully and very accurately executed um, uh, copy. And some people got it partly right. The Manchester manuscript is very good, and I haven't actually looked at the manuscript, but I would imagine that the misplaced pages and so on uh, the binder's fault and not the copyist's fault. At some stage, somebody probably dropped it and it was carelessly rebound, and that would explain, perhaps, why we have a few rogue sequences. If we look at the Paris manuscript, I'm sorry, I simply took these with my iPhone, so they're a bit blurry. You know how it is when you've got to take an accurate picture, your hand shakes uncontrollably. <laughs> well, they started out, whoever copied this, um, sort of reinterpreting it in their own way, but, but following the general principle. I think you can, if you look at the leaf uh, finials or tree finials, if you've got any down there, you can see that it's the same idea. And those uh, tables are okay, but then they got the bit between their teeth, and this, I think, is a considerably later manuscript, and they started doing their own thing. And what they're doing is confusing this, which is uh, what the original, which is a sequence of praise poems, with something of devotional use in which you write the names of holy people and their characteristics and so on and so forth. Um, so that's what that ends up doing. And um, it is, in fact, a, a manuscript which must have entered the royal collections at the end of, or in the middle of the 17th century. I don't know how many times it has been rebound, and whether uh, the rebindings follow uh, a manuscript which already had these interferences, or whether somebody thought that they all look much of a muchness, so why not put them together. Um, the 
cataloguer in the mid-19th century took one look at this and consigned to his printed catalogue, which has been consulted now. Uh, I don't know that anyone's actually bothered to look at this, but of course it is in print and therefore immortal. He said that this was of no interest, either artistic or literary. Um, uh, so uh, anybody reading the catalogue, I think, would have skipped this. And uh, nobody appears to have studied it apart from Abu Dib uh, using uh, using mainly the reader's marks, the marks of ownership and so on, for his edition. Um, and it has been sent recently for yet another rebinding, so anything that we might have been able to find out about the binding is probably, um, unless, unless somebody has studied it in the course of rebinding, it is probably irrecoverable. There's another manuscript that I looked at, which is this one, which is in Uppsala in Sweden. This is certainly in style a Mamluk binding. I don't know if you can see it from that distance, and it's a very beautiful one too. And it is complete, the front, the back, uh, the middle and the flap. Uh, knocked about a bit, but it is all in one piece. And it fits the manuscript, which doesn't seem to have been trimmed down. So I would like to think that it is integral. But there are two guard pages which have a watermark. And that watermark has been, uh, I think, identified. Or we're on the way to identifying it, thanks to Christina putting me in touch with the Uppsala librarian. Uh, he said it looked to him like a watermark to which she gave me the link, which is a German watermark of before 1638. So the question is, where did these end papers come from? And uh, as there are no other means, I think, of dating this manuscript, uh, we are at the moment rather stuck. There is yet another manuscript that's the watermark. I'm sorry, it's a terrible photo. And that is its absolutely beautiful uh, title page. Um, I'm afraid that the photograph cannot convey the luster of, of the colours and, and the beauty of the uh, tracery and penmanship. And there is an example of the contents, which are very finely executed. There's another manuscript that is in the Khalidiya Library in Jerusalem, and they have put online simply a few cobbled together snapshots of its contents. And this is undated, but it does appear to be of very much the same date as the Manchester manuscript. There is a fairly recent, it's a couple of years old now, fairly recent book by Conrad Hirschler, which is about the catalogue of a library, uh, the Ashrafiya in Damascus, which he thinks closed down before the end of the 13th century, and many of the contents of which were carried off to Constantinople after 1507. And he's identified a fair number of them. Now, I would like to think 
that the Khalidiyya manuscript is actually one of the Ashrafiya manuscripts because the Ashrafiya catalogue has an item which is identical with the Khalidiyya. So manuscripts do come and go, they get sold off and re-enter libraries near their place of origin. It does happen, it's a coincidence. I would sentimentally like to think that this is the Ashrafiya uh, manuscript back near where it belongs, but I haven't been able to see this manuscript yet. So what we have at the moment is uh, a solution to the problem of the Abu Dib edition. Um, it is an edition which reproduces many features of the text, such as the alternating colours in the plain text. Um, it doesn't crack the problem of the scrolls, but that can be solved quite easily separately. The other aspect of the structure of the book, as I'm calling the book based on the Manchester manuscript, is that it is a composite several poems that are complex structures and that have their own books of instructions that accompany them. Then there is a whole set of other questions and I'm only going to uh, raise the ones that concern these uh, scrolls or books, whatever we care to call them, as objects. I'm not going to discuss the content and the literary importance. We have manuscripts that end up in European collections, having been bought at various times from the 17th century to, in the case of the Gotha manuscript, probably 1807. They were sold clearly as being desirable objects and they were bought as being desirable objects and they were copied as being desirable objects and they must have been very laborious and expensive to copy. Some of the copies show a complete understanding of what is being copied such as the Gotha uh, manuscript but the Paris manuscript obviously does not show such an understanding. It grasps some of the uh, essence and it reinterprets it as far as the structure of the figures goes. But as for the purpose of the figures, it then, as it were, takes over with its own repurposing of these figures if the intrusions are indeed inspired by the original figures. So a lot of questions, I think, can be asked about why these should have been copied when, although they are very beautiful, their original purpose was no longer relevant. And even more, perhaps, why the Paris manuscript should have been copied when its purpose not only was no longer relevant, but doesn't really seem to have been understood. So I think I'll probably uh, stop at that point. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs>